Hey everyone, um, thanks for listening. Today I've got with me uh, Lalo Digash. Uh, Lalo is, you know, we're friends online, so we're internet friends. Um, but Lalo is also a translator. He's living in Chile right now, and he's got a really good podcast covering a wide range of topics. Uh, he has covered ex-Muslims quite a bit, but he also covers uh, different topics from books he's read. And he's also a good source of me to find out what to read next. So, hey, Lalo, thanks a lot for coming on. And if you want to tell people about yourself a little bit. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I have a podcast called Lalo the Gosh Podcast. Um, I usually read books and then interview the author. Sometimes it's an activist. Um, and mostly about people who were either brought up in a religious community or research religion. And it's people of all kinds of religion from all over the world. But I do put a lot of focus on the Middle East and Islam but um, also Christianity, um, Judaism, um, whatever I can find. I find it very interesting. Um, I have a podcast coming out uh, about uh, from a book about um, the Heaven's Gators, Heaven's Gate, which was a very interesting uh, cult from the 90s that committed mass suicide. So I, fi I find cults recently very interesting as well. So I was born in the U.S. I was born in Los Angeles. Both my parents are from Chile. They immigrated there in the 70s. And then I moved when I was very young, around like uh, 12. I came to Chile and did high school here. Then I did some university here as well. I, I actually went to a communist university here in Chile. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, there's a there's a communist university that's not around anymore, closed recently, called Arsis. Um, I studied there. I was not a communist, by the way. That's just to be clear. I only studied there because I wanted to study film, and it was the only film school in in Chile uh, at the time. Now there's more, but it was the only university that offered a, a film uh, as a major. So, but then I only studied there for a couple years, and then I went to UC Santa Barbara. Where I graduated and then I moved to Korea. Then I lived a while in Japan. And then I came back to Chile um, to do my master's here in international relations. And and but ethnically, I'm from the diaspora of Palestinians that came to Chile. And Chile has the fourth largest um, diaspora of Palestinians in the world. Is the fourth largest population of Palestinians in the world. Largest outside of the Middle East, and I, in maybe three times larger than the U.S. Okay, um, that's that's <laughs> kind of why, like, I was because I wanted to get on that because you've traveled quite a bit, and so have I. And mm -hmm. I mean, I've always been saying this, like, the traveling, and not, not traveling, like, going. Okay, I'm going to go to India, but I'm going to stay in the Hilton and eat at, you know, McDonald's or whatever, right? But actually, traveling and going out and seeing. You know how the locals live, like hanging out with the locals, like I, that kind of stuff. So I just want to talk to you about like your experiences of traveling and you know what you think the benefit was, what you got out of it, and also especially like learning other languages, like you know, like as a way to helping other people. You know, I always said if you learn a language, it's a lot easier to understand the people if you at least speak that language, right? Not just understand what they're saying, but also get into their mindset, because each language, the way it's set up, is slightly different. I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot since becoming active online um, and seeing other people do interviews and podcasts 
and trying to understand subjects such as Islam and the Middle East. And I think a lot of people get get a lot of things wrong when they try to understand other cultures. I think most people try to understand other cultures solely through other people's experience. So in in politics, if you study like political science and you have you've ever had to write like a paper or a thesis on it, you'll you'll know that there is quantitative and qualitative research. And the quantitative is when you add statistics, um, you add hard hard data, right? Studies, polls, um, historical events, um, laws, for example, all everything that is just hard data. And then there's qualitative data, which you know is authors' opinions, people's statements, you know what, what they experienced during certain things. And neither is considered n- invalid necessarily. Obviously, there's a leaning towards the quantitative in, in, in these studies. But I, I believe you can't actually understand anything without both. You de- and you can't, you can't understand it just with quantitative data. You can't understand, you're not going to understand the Middle East just through looking at statistics on Pew Research. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You can't just see, you know, you know how many pe- what percentage of Muslims... Uh, approve of blasphemy laws or or approve of sharia or you know oppose divorce and abortion things like that it's it's important to know what percentage believes or doesn't believe in certain topics but you can't just understand it that way but equally you can't just find a random person from iraq or syria interview them and then think you understand the Middle East. I mean, it happens a lot. And I think this is kind of bugs me when I hear people make these kind of assumptions when they interview someone. It's very typical of people in the West to meet somebody from a foreign country and believe their opinions are representative of the majority. When that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, there's for one that person might belong to a very small minority a religious minority an ideological minority and sometimes you know people who are very affluent right very rich or perhaps even very poor or very middle class have their skewed look of the country right if they're very rich and they live in a very isolated community they go to a boarding school or private school they'll say oh no you know people are very wealthy in my country you know there's no there's very little poverty um, maybe that's not the, the case. Maybe they're just ignorant of it. And I've met plenty of people like that, um, depending on the country they're from. Um, I've met people who talk about how conservative their country is. When I, when I uh, moved to Korea, prior to moving to Korea, I had met a Korean girl who said that in Korea, girls don't wear skirts. You just never see girls wearing skirts in Korea. It, it's not a thing. And then I moved to Korea. I lived there for, for a few years. Spring and summer comes along and girls in mini skirts everywhere. So what was going on? Was the girl lying? No, the girl was in fact a very conservative Christian. So I'm sure her and her family and her friends and the people she's around, that was true for them. Right? But it certainly wasn't the common thing. And that happens a lot. Another thing is is uh, ignorance. Pe- most people are very ignorant of their own country. Not everybody's an expert on politics and history of their own country. Most people aren't. Certainly, you know, I live in Chile. Most people are not experts in in history of Chile or politics in Chile. I'm not even. I don't. I, I mostly study international politics, 
and history. I don't, I put, you know, I know some because I studied politics here, but I, it, it's not even my main focus. Um, and I mean, it certainly wouldn't, you would tell me that, you know, just speaking to some random Canadian, not necessarily they're going to know everything about Canadian politics. Well, so okay. just a small, so, a small interjection. Yeah. The only Canadian politics that important that matters is hockey. So we don't <laughs> care about anything else up here. Right. So, gonna... so I, I really believe you have to do both to summarize. I really think like if you want to understand, you know, the, the Middle East, I mean, the Middle East is already too much to try to understand. You, you can some people try to, you know, interview somebody from maybe from Egypt and they're just saying, you know, tell me about the Middle East. Maybe that person hasn't even traveled within the Middle East. They can barely maybe tell you about Egypt. And even then, maybe they're only telling you about Cairo, maybe. Right. Because even outside other cities, especially in the Middle East, you know, sometimes they speak other languages and have other cultures. I mean, just within a country like Egypt or Iraq, you might have hundreds, sometimes even thousands of different cultures. Right. Tribes who practice very different kind of traditions. So to just interview, you know, one or two people and then just say, you know, you know, t tell me about Islam and tell me about Muslims. How do people live in the Middle East? You can't really do that. You know, this is why I go from, you know, place to place. I, I talk to somebody from Jordan, from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia, and people live incredibly differently. Sometimes even the Islam they practice is incredibly different from place to place. And then you have to combine that with data, with books you read, with history, with, with understanding some about, uh, you know, some of the theology about Islam. There's there's a lot to understand. It, it's it's practically undoable. I think when you if you want to understand the Middle East, you can only pick maybe three countries and try to understand them pretty well. I don't really think you can do more than that. Yeah, and that's another okay. Sticking with that problem, like people say, okay, we're going to discuss the Middle East, and like you said, okay, we'll go talk to an Egyptian. But I'm sorry, but Egypt is not the Middle East. I mean, that's why they call that whole region Mina, right? Egypt is North Africa, but kind of. The North African countries have been lumped into the Middle East because they are now Arab speaking and they are now predominantly Muslim, right? But if you take the Middle East and you take North Africa, these were two distinct populations. These were two different peoples to begin with. And then now they're kind of Arab countries in a way, but they're not really, you know, it's, it's, it's different, you know, like especially Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia, those are those were, you know, uh, those are primarily uh, Berbers. And then Egypt, mm -hmm. you know, Egypt, if you go back, like the Copts are more uh, ancestrally Egyptian, if you want to say, than, you know, people who were, you know, came in when Arabs started coming in. And then when they start people, bringing people in from sub-Saharan Africa up into Northern Africa, like, so just talking about the middle east you know, like oh i know about the middle east because i spoke to someone from egypt just goes shows you how ignorant you are because egypt is not the middle east you know yeah i mean like i used to i worked in afghanistan like you know that and the people there were like oh yeah we're in the middle east i'm like no we're not we're in west asia and you know these were some of these people were in the canadian military and they'd been there long enough to get their medal and the medal that the canadian military gave to the soldiers in afghanistan was the west asia service medal yet they still call themselves as being in the Middle East. And these were people who were there. So like you said, like the, the lack of understanding and just ignorance uh, on a lot of parts. And, you know, part of that comes from media. Uh, you know, I might've played 
some very small part in it. Not that I think I've got a huge reach or anything like where I've talked about things wrongly and not clarified like this, like, you know, Egypt is not the Middle East, you know, they have different problems in North Africa than they would have in like Saudi or Yemen, like you'd brought up, you know, like you, you can't just say, Oh, here's the problem with the Middle East. Um, right. So for example, as you know, and you know, this is, you know, as well as I do that, a disproportionate amount of the people who are ex-Muslim who are interviewed by even very big shows like Sam Harris or Ruben Report or many others are mostly Pakistani, right? That's not throwing any hate towards their way. It, I mean, it's fine. I mean, they could be from anywhere. It, do, it doesn't matter. They could be mostly Saudi. They could be mostly Egyptian, mostly Moroccan. It doesn't matter. They just turned out to be mostly Pakistani. Okay, but it's it should be understood that they're representing a certain ethnic group, a certain nationality, a certain culture, that's not clarified usually, right? And to, to just have on a lot of Pakistanis who, and Pakistan is not in the Middle East, very a, a very shocking amount of people who even follow this topic very closely on Islam believe that Pakistan is in the Middle East. And I've even encountered people who think they're Arab, right? And, and, I, and I see this even from people from the UK, where, you know, they have a lot of problem with um, Muslim e extremism and fundamentalism and Sharia courts. But the overwhelming majority of Muslims in the UK are of Pakistani and Bangladeshi background. Arabs only make up less than 7 yeah. percent. Right. There's I think there's only in total in 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 Britain, like 500,000 um, Arabs, people of Arab background. There's over a million in Chile. Right. I mean, there, and there's also only about 500,000 people of Arab background in Australia. There, there's and to give you an idea, when I say 500,000 are in Australia and the UK, there's over tw 12 million people of Arab background in Brazil, over 12 million. Right. So when people do, do that and they're they have on a person of Pakistani background, Totally fine. It's totally valid if they're Pakistani or, or if they're Saudi. It's, you know, no country is less valid than the other, obviously. But you can't have on a person like that and just say, well, just tell me about Islam, right? And think like now you're going to understand ISIS in Syria, right? Or Saudi, you know, Wahhabism. Um, you, you have to be clear about what you're talking about. And a lot of people don't maybe not understand what I mean by this. You know, it's like, well, isn't it all, all the same? It's like, well, no, you, you're certainly going to not, for example, to, to make it clear, and this is the only way people seem to understand it clearly, is that you'd obviously be making a very big error if you wanted to do a podcast where you try to understand the abuses in the Catholic Church. And 90% of your guests were Mormons from Paraguay. That's essentially what, what, what is happening, right? Like you're, you're asking on Mormons from Paraguay to talk about abuses of the Catholic Church. And when you have them on, you just say, well, this is a Christian. Tell me about Catholicism, right? Th that's not really, you know, an apt thing to do unless the person is an expert on that topic. Yeah, some I kind mean, of study, some kind of degree, which that's not usually the case. And I mean, it, it, like you're right here too. And, and again, this was uh, because none of these things were up until 2014 when I got back I, I never talked about these things really I was just you know I well I was gone I was working overseas for 13 years so that's one of the reasons but you know when I first said okay well there's problems with Islam but you know and we've talked about this before like 
my family has in our background, and I actually did the 23 and me, and it's less than my dad thought it was. But anyways, we do come from like his his great his great grandfather or his grandfather moved from Yemen to India, and um, but there is a love hate relationship there. And then when we moved when I moved to Canada, the first time I heard about Shia, like we moved to Canada when I was six, the first time I heard about Shia Sunni. Up until that point, I was like, okay, we're Muslims. There's Islam. I hadn't even heard about Shia Sunni until about 1980 or 81, like the first Intifada into Lebanon, right? Like around mm-hmm. that time. And that's when they, they started hearing a lot about Shia. And that was also, you know, 79 was the Islamic Revolution in Iran. So the term started, the word started coming up. But up until I was about 11 or so, or maybe 12, I didn't know there was a Sunni Shia thing. I'd heard about, you know, Protestants and Catholics because I was living in Canada. And I just thought about Islam as one big giant thing. I didn't even realize there were separations in it. And that might be par for the course still for some people living in India or Pakistan. Like the, it, it's not something that comes up every day. It's not something, unless you are in a, if you are in a Shia household in India or a Shia household in Pakistan, I don't think that on a day-to-day basis, it's talked about as Shia or Sunni, right? Or even Ahmadi in Pakistan, you know, some parts of India. The majority of the people there are still Sunni, as the majority of Arab uh, Muslims are. And they they say, they'll just talk about Islam. It's it's. I think it's only the minorities themselves that try to make that distinction because they feel it the most acutely, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, to going back to the topic that you brought up initially about language mm-hmm. and culture. I mean, I, I, I lived for a while in, in Korea and learned Korean. I mean, just there, just in in East Asia, you compare Korea to Japan, they are completely different languages. They can't speak to one another um, between those languages, Korean Korean and Japanese. Um, The the cultures are extremely different, although there's a lot of Confucius and Buddhist background. They're very different cultures still. And there's a lot of hatred, racial hatred between the two. Um, And if you know uh, some of the history, it's because of the colonization of Japan of Korea. Yeah. And and that those factors are very important and if you apply, you know, the same kind of ideas then like to the Middle East, when people start talking about, you know, Islam in general or they talk about, you know, reforming Islam, there are hurdles that I don't hear brought up very often, which is hurdles of language, you know, it, um if you're hearing from a a Pakistani Sufi in the UK whose main language is English and then probably Urdu. Well, you you know very well, Obey, that well that that's that's a very particular language to Pakistan, maybe some parts of Bangladesh and Afghanistan and, and so on, but not of the Middle East. You also know that there's a lot of racial discrimination between Arabs and Southeast Asians. A lot. They, they, to the point where it's very difficult that they would pay attention to the thoughts of another person. Uh, religiously there's some exceptions there are some famous um um east asian uh, preachers and imams right in, in the middle east but it's it's very rare still and those are the, the racial tribal linguistic cultural discriminations between a lot of these countries i mean just within these countries within one country again let's say iraq you know there you know there's there's a iraq is one of the exceptions in the Middle East where it has a very large Sunni and Shia um, base of, of Muslims 
and a lot of the the tribalism and the conflicts that have happened in that country are because of that Sunni Shia divide. And then and then on top of that, you have the tribal divides, the cultural divides, the tribal divides. Um, it, there's so many in just in one country, to and and cross uh, you know nations. You know the, there there's you know the Turkish hate the Kurds, the the, the Kurds have problems with, with the Arabs. The Arabs ha- have issues with uh w- with the Southeast Asians, and uh, it just goes on and on and on, right? The the, the Persians don't like the Arabs. The, it, it just there, there's no end to to uh, to the, these uh, conflicts, and they're not always just based in religion. Oh no, not at all. I mean, okay, when you're talking about like okay, everyone has these disagreements. There was a saying in Afghanistan, and it was, uh, "Me against my brother." My brother and I against um, our tribe, our tribe against our clan, our clan against other Afghanis, all Afghanis against everyone else, and that's the order they would fight in, right? And 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 I'm sure that doesn't involve every hatred even no, there. No, no, but it's, I'm sure there's way more. I'm sure they just that's just a summary. Yeah, exactly. But that's how they yeah. that's how they think about like who they're gonna, you know, sure. like they're, they're all. They're, it was kind of a way to say they're always fighting against someone. But this is the order in which they will, you know, they'll defend themselves. And it's when you talk about the tribalism in the Middle East and stuff like that, it, it's it's totally there. And same, okay, the the racism and stuff. Um, I'd see some of it in Dubai, like when you're going in, um, you'd see all the migrant workers coming in from, you know, India or the Philippines or Nepal or you know any part of like either Southeast Asia or South Asia and they would be just kind of herded into like one section and they're being completely and utterly mistreated. You know, even in the, in the immigration lines and stuff, they're, they're being herded through like cattle. And then you hear about, you know, the conditions they live in. Um, There were a couple of, you know, that they were, they have their passports taken, things like that. But then on the other side too, there is, I mean, I would see it in my family they would, you know, so whatever, N of one, um, you know, there was a respect for Arabs and, oh, if you're someone's from Saudi Arabia, oh, they're, 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 they're so much more holy than I am because they live closer to Mecca. But at the same time, too, they would talk disparagingly of Arabs because of certain things like, okay, well, like my cousin recently, he'd been working for a firm fixing air conditioners in Saudi Arabia. And then when he came back, it's like, oh, they treated me so badly, blah, blah, blah. And then just dumping it all on Arabs. So, I mean, there is a two-way mm. thing. I mean, unfortunately, when most of these people go work in Saudi Arabia, they don't have much chance. Like, they're going there because they can make a much better living than where they are. They have their passports taken away. Like, the the hatred or the, the racism even from going the other way, it's, it's people talking amongst themselves, and they can't really then... You know, it's not like Arabs are coming to India to go work, right? Um, maybe that'll start happening. Who knows? And they're, they're not being mistreated there. So it, it's the racism of saying, okay, well, I'm racist because you know, they did this to us. Or even there is some resentment of, you know, why are they, they're so lucky. How come, you know, we didn't get that luck, like a envious form of racism there as well. And it's, like I said, I, I, I see that as well. And again, I was, I was trying to get back to that. Like it's, I think if, you know, if you understood the language you might have a better chance of understanding how people think. And even then, like the language, sorry, I'm running off a little bit here. The language there is 
an Arab that's spoken in Egypt is not the same as an Ar the Arabic that's spoken in Saudi Arabia or, you know, in Yemen or in Iraq. There, there's, you know, different dialects and it's slightly different, you know, like, I'm sure it's the same in Spanish. Like the Spanish spoken in Chile is not the same as Spanish spoken in Mexico, right? There's different slang. There's different um, idioms that people use. It's, mm -hmm. you know, so like that, I think like that makes a big difference on trying to understand you know where people are coming from how how it you know like how come they say this even something is you know like something like humor like i don't think if you i can translate a joke from english to french and it's nowhere near as funny you know even to myself even though i understand the english of it right like in french it just is not as funny and like like i i don't know if i'm making any sense here or if i'm just rambling no, no, no. That's it. Makes a perfect sense. There's a lot of an importance in in language. For example, you know well that, for example, the the Quran for Muslims has to be read, and it may be memorized in Arabic. It, it there uh, people who go to mosque and read the the Quran, they don't read a translated version to their language. Correct. No. That's that's typical. That's that's true of almost anywhere in the world where you, especially Muslim country. I wonder how many people are aware of the fact that, for example, in Pakistan, people, for example, for to begin with, something like half the country is illiterate in any language; mm -hmm. they just can't read or write. Those who can read or write, their main language is Urdu, and then there's other languages on top. I think there's like four languages before you even reach uh, Arabic. It's maybe a handful of people, mostly maybe imams and some clerics, who know. Uh, Arabic fluently. So that means the way, way overwhelming majority, probably over 90 99%, can't read or write or possibly even speak Arabic. And they can't then read the Quran and have kind of a self-debate with the with, with the religion in written form. Most of their information is coming from the imams. That is going to create a very different situation and relation of Muslims to their religion versus a country where people can read and write in Arabic, correct? Oh, totally. Um, right. It, it's going to be it's going to be very different, and therefore you're going to have different practices uh, of religion uh, and Islam. Uh, Pakistanis have to re rely on what their imam telling them the, telling them the the translation of the Quran or Hadith says, while you know a person who's reads and write in, in Arabic and read the Quran themselves can have their own personal discussion with it. Um, that can lead to them becoming either maybe more secular because they see contradictions in themselves in the Quran, or maybe it can lead to them becoming more Salafi. Salafi meaning that they uh, they become more literalist and they follow the example of the Prophet. For example, ISIS are Salafi, correct? So yeah. it, it's, you know, it, it creates a different dynamic with the religion. And this doesn't happen in Christianity. Christians are not forced to read the, the the Bible in ancient Greek in its in its original form, correct? You know, Catholics yeah. here in Chile go go to the go to church and they can they can read the the Bible in Spanish. Yeah, and it's, I mean, okay, mm -hmm. and granted, okay, Christianity had that, and if this is not a what about is really, but it went through that, right? Like in England, Thomas More, and now now you know Saint Thomas More, the patron saint of politicians used to burn people at the stake in England for owning a Bible in English, right? So, like, we've, um, you know, Christianity's like you said, has come out of that, whereas Islam still has that, and you have to learn it in Arabic. And in some ways, that's worked to my advantage in a little bit, 
like I, you know, I've, I've been told, oh, well, you, you can't say that you don't believe anymore because you didn't understand enough because you don't speak Arabic. And this is someone, you know, the person who's telling me this is someone who I know doesn't speak Arabic. So I just throw it back in their face. Like, well, then obviously you're saying 80% of the Muslims in the world don't know Islam well enough to actually be Muslims because they don't speak Arabic. I mean, it, it cuts both That's ways. exactly the point. I've used, I use that same point. Muslims will always tell you that, you know, 1.5 or 1.6 billion people are, are, are Muslim in the world. But then when you try to, you know, debate them on what the Quran, or the Hadith says, they say, well, you don't, you don't speak Arabic and you can't read or write in Arabic. Therefore, you can't say anything about Islam. Well, I'm just like, well, you're just, you just threw out, you know, like 80% of all Muslims since, you know, uh, Arabs only make up, what, 15, close to 20 maybe percent of, yeah, of all Muslims. 15 or 20%. Right. The most populated countries of, of Muslims is what, it's Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Maybe Bangladesh and 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 uh, Iran, maybe not necessarily in that order. None of those are are Arab, and none of those are are necessarily are speak speaking. So, are they saying that all those countries are they're not real Muslims or Muslims at all? They don't count with within that number they they just gave you. So they 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 use certain facts that are convenient to them when necessary, and then they throw them out when it's inconvenient. So you have to be careful with those kind of a. Uh, those kind of statements about uh about Arabic and also the the when people throw out the the fact like oh you don't speak Arabic that the 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 importance of Arabic for a Muslim is only relevant if you're Muslim it's not relevant for like me for example I under I understand why it's relevant for a Muslim I understand that if the if the Quran and the Hadith and Islam are dictating every aspect of your life day to day how you eat, how you dress, how you walk, how you'll marry, you know, what, what you, what you'll work in everything you do. I understand that the, having the exact correct translation of every verse is very essential to your life. I understand that, but they have to understand that it's not essential for my life, right? I don't, I don't need that kind of specificity. No. You know, a translation is fine for me. I, I've seen sometimes, you know, more than one translation of some verses, but you know, I, I just need a general idea. Uh, this is this is like you know the the Star Wars nerds telling you have you seen every movie a thousand times or or these Harry Potter nerds right when they tell you well have you read all the books I was like no I just saw the movies well then you can't comment on Harry Potter yeah. it's like well I got an idea of what Harry Potter is like you know the books might be good but I you know I'm not a big fantasy fan so I don't really need that kind kind of detail so you know when anybody it doesn't matter who they are they start they start telling you about Arabic it's like yeah that's a rule for Muslims that's not a rule for us not muslims who are just looking for a general scope of, of what's going on here right it's like i don't need the 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 exact perfect translation of every word of a verse to know you know how how to wash my feet for example that that is no relevance relevance for me whatsoever yeah. i couldn't care less right or, or you know which which foot to use when you step into your house or exactly like, you know, like, exactly something yeah, like that yeah. right. you know it, it's all right well i mean i i so what i like i it's fun as it is to talk about this. I want to just like switch gears a little bit because you've done a lot of stuff on Twitter recently about Venezuela and everything that's going on there. And because I know, I know obviously you don't you're not living in Venezuela, but at least your your proximity is a lot closer than where I am. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I do understand that Chile got has been getting refugees coming in from Venezuela, or people. It's just one of the main countries that has been getting uh, immigrants from Venezuela. Yeah, I, I can't leave my house anymore without meeting at least one Venezuelan everywhere. 
So um, I wanted to see, like, you know, because, like, you know, you have studied politics, and like you said, you'd study more international, and I saw what, everything you were putting up about Venezuela. So I just wanted, to, if you will, you know, if you wouldn't mind, maybe like giving like a brief rundown, even though you know it, it's a complicated topic and you can't, you know, really break it down. Too yeah, I, I, I mean, if uh, even if I was to do a a podcast myself on Venezuela, it would have to be a series of like you know, five podcasts, you know, three hours each or something. Um, I've been following the topic of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela since about like 2009 or eight. Uh, And it was one of the main focuses when I was studying international politics. Since that day, since the, the, the time I was following it, that country has been going down the tubes. That it was it was one of the reasons I even started following the topics. So I, I see people online claiming that you know the 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 problems of of econ- economically in Venezuela are are only under Maduro. They're only of the last five years, et cetera, et cetera. This is nonsense. They they've been happening since day one, under Hugo Chavez in 1999, right? Um, even when he initially um, decreased poverty in Venezuela. He was already he already in the first year tore apart the Congress and the Constitution in the first year. I mean, that the whole thing starts to go to hell very quick. And. It's very complicated to explain to people what's happening in Venezuela, but I'll I'll, I can give you I can tell you a story that I think encompasses exactly what's wrong with Venezuela. And I should preface by saying a lot. A lot of people online summarize the problem to Venezuela on the right. They just say the problem is socialism. And the, pro- and the problem I see with that is that when they say that the problem is socialism, they're involving topics that come from the United States, have nothing to do with it. For example, they might include it when they say the problem is socialism, like, and this is why we shouldn't have Obamacare. And this is why we shouldn't have, you know, like free education, Right or or free healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. That's not an issue. That's not what's happening in Venezuela. The country did not go to hell because they had something like Obamacare. Um, there's many kinds of socialism. Another thing to understand that in Latin America, socialism is very often used synonymously with communism. And what was happening in Venezuela over the last 20 years is much more leaning towards communism than it is socialism. And even the and they never made any qualms about this. They called it a socialist revolution, but they modeled their economy and their politics after Cuba. That was their model. And Hugo Chavez said that from day one. And all the his posters on the streets showed Che Guevara and and Fidel Castro, and that's who he was, you know, number one buddies with. Um, the same thing happened in Chile under Salvador Allende. He, you know, first thing he did when he became president was invite over Fidel Castro. Um, so what happened in, in Venezuela? Well, besides what I told you about, like him, you know, deconstructing the, the Congress, tearing apart the Constitution. He also started expropriating properties, companies with well, the first thing he did. I, I think it was within the first days that he threw out all the American companies who were. Uh bringing out oil and you know a lot of companies that what they do is they buy um the uh, basically property under oil they buy the oil and they pay a royalty to the country um this is often because the country doesn't have the technology to take out the oil themselves 
so just sorry it's kind of like buying the rights to drill the oil and they they pay them a fee so they a, a royalty yes exactly mm -hmm. right um so he just threw out the gringos sent him home and they're, they're like okay now the oil is back in the hands of venezuela we will take it out and he started but then he started doing this with everything everything um news channels became all under the control of of hugo chavez except for i, I think one um and w uh, to go back to the example i was going to say that i think this is the best example of people want to understand what economically went wrong in venezuela so i was working as a translator for an investment firm so i'm not an, i'm not an investment guy i was in I, I, i'm not an economics guy but i was working as a translator for an investment firm and they have investments all over the world and they had an inv investments in venezuela and this is around maybe 2010 or 2011 and one of the guys who worked there said that they owned um a factory that made porcelain products for bathrooms right so they made bathtubs toilets a sink things like that and they said we sold it how much do you think we sold it for i was like i don't know how, how much is a factory worth a million dollars hundred million dollars i have no idea Said they said we sold it for two thousand dollars. Like why did you do that? Well, and then he explains to me what, what's you know what happened in Venezuela. So in in the first like ten years, almost you know uh, of Hugo Chavez, he brought down poverty. How did he do that? That's that's the important thing. It's not a lot of people say, oh Hugo Chavez, you know improved, uh, you know brought down the poverty in, in Venezuela. But it's important to know how. So he would make these homes. He started building homes for for uh, for the poor. Sounds great. Oh, he's building homes for the poor. Wonderful. Everyone should be doing that. Build homes for the poor. How did he build these homes? Well, you, to build a home, for example, you need bathtubs, sinks, uh, toilets. So where would he get them? Well, he would go to a store in in Caracas and he would send the military there. They would take out the products and then they would take them to go to build these homes. They wouldn't pay for it. They just took it. So what happened with that store? Well, the store closed because they didn't get their money for the products they they were selling, right? Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, that that store closed, and that store was buying those porcelain products from a factory where they where they were made, and suddenly the factory wasn't selling to those stores anymore. So the factory was worthless. So the factory closed. So the investment firm here in Chile sold the factory for $2,000 because it was worthless. And you see the chain of events there that comes with Hugo Chavez lowering poverty. Yes, suddenly there's a home for a poor person, but there's another person who owned a store and that store closed. Suddenly that person is out of work. They lost their business. And suddenly a factory closed. That's a bunch of people out of work. And the owner, they lost their business too. And the investment firm, what do they do? Well, they didn't just sell the, their their factory for two thousand dollars. What else happened? Well, they also are saying, telling themselves, we're never going to invest in Venezuela again. We invested in a factory that we then sold for two thousand dollars because it was worthless. We lost money there. We're never going to invest in this country again. So when people on the left say, "Oh, the problems were were American sanctions. That's why the money wasn't coming in because the American sanctions." Well, mostly, you know, the American sanctions were just mostly sanctions on on property and and uh, offshore accounts from the leadership, 
in the executive in the military. It wasn't saying they couldn't trade. In fact, the U.S. was the main buyer of oil from Venezuela up until a few days ago. They were the main buyers. And that's because the, the oil in Venezuela can't be processed. It's a very heavy crude oil. It can only be processed in a very few places. And one of those places is the United States. So the whole sanction thing is ridiculous. They made their own sanctions by just alienating foreign investors. Why? Because nobody wants to put money there. For example, you probably heard at some point Venezuela, they, nobody had toilet paper, right? You heard that story. Everyone heard that story. I, There's no toilet paper. I, I didn't hear that. I mean, I heard. You didn't? I heard. You know, so this was a very famous story like, oh God, maybe more than five years ago. And this, and it's still the case today, but suddenly every, and I had friends there who showed me pictures, like took pictures of their closet with toilet paper. And this is like, this is what we have for the next few months. Just these rolls of toilet paper. Now, how does a country with the biggest oil reserves in the world not have toilet paper? You'd say, well, can't they just buy more? Well, here's the thing. You, you let's say you own a factory that makes toilet paper and you sell it to countries around the world, right? At supermarkets around the world. One of these countries is Venezuela. Well, the military in Venezuela was going into supermarkets, taking the food and taking the products and then redistributing th those products to people. And the supermarket were just closing. Sometimes the, and what happened often was those supermarkets would sometimes have some products in bodega in a. Is that what you say in English? In a bodega, like like put away in a storage, in storage. And so they had things, these things in storage, and they would they would keep it away and not sell it like in the supermarket because they could make more money from selling it in the black market because these products became very scarce, right? So knowing that like the supermarket is being expropriated and and they're taking products from there, so the supermarket isn't really willing to buy you know, the, the products from you. So you're like, I'm not selling in Venezuela anymore. That's what happens. That's why they run out of toilet paper because you as a person who owns a company that makes toilet paper, you're not, you don't want to sell there anymore because it's not, you're not making money. The supermarket isn't making any money. That's why they, their, their country, uh, economies, uh, fell, you know, fell through the ground. That, and that, and that's why the, the value of everything was lost the value. And also, you know, the, the value of the money was lost because, you're not a proper prosperous nation, right? You're not you're not creating anything. There's no collateral on on uh, on your money. Speaking of that, I just read somewhere that, um, uh, uh, God, why can't I, I'm drawing a complete blank here? Um, Maduro, he was like cashing out some of the gold reserves of the country to like help stave off death or just I I, I don't know like like he was selling off some of the gold reserves and like. To me, that's insane because that's like you said, that's backing. Yes. However, weak. that's called what was it the gold standard, right? Yeah. Where the the value of a country's money is is set in collateral with the gold of the country, yeah. right? The United States has Fort Knox and country, and this started many years ago. The whole gold thing. Now people are hearing about it now, but for example, this was like six or seven years ago. There was a story where Maduro brought because the gold they have wasn't stored in Venezuela; it was stored abroad. And you, even now they have some gold stored in the UK, but they brought some gold from overseas to Venezuela. And guess what they did? They even made a parade out of it. They paraded the gold through the streets and they would say, el oro de Venezuela ha vuelto a su gente, ha vuelto a su hogar. The gold of Venezuela has returned to its country, it's returned to its people as if 
it was being wasted away somewhere else or somebody else was owning it. And now it's in the hands of the people. Right now, why did he do that? Because the people in the military and in the executive realized, and this was under Chavez that I'm telling you this parade happened. They already saw that inflation was, was going to hell and they needed to pay off, especially the people in charge, which is mainly the military, right? They need to finance the country. They need to pay off the military, keep certain people happy and they can't pay them with, with Bolivares. They, so they need to pay them with gold. And I also think that a lot of the people in charge were kind of, they're not that dumb, although they're pretty dumb, but they're not dumb enough to know that their country and their currency was going to hell and that if they were going to steal money, there's no point in stealing, stealing Bolivares, right? That the, that money's worthless. You could burn it for all they care. So they need to steal something that doesn't lose value, which is gold. And But even the gold they had, which they brought over, as I told you seven years ago, they needed to start selling it off. And they sold, uh, I heard they, I read that they sold uh, last year in 2018, Maduro sold three, three tons, was it, you know, is it three, or is it three million tons? I forget, but it was a certain quantity, like three tons of gold to, um, the, I believe it was Turkey. And this year he tried to sell to the Emirates 15 tons. And why did he try like so why did he duplicate so much the quantity of gold he needed to sell? Well, because because the United States cut off his his uh, his his um, his currency to get money from oil and he's desperate to get money. And so he's he's trying to sell off the gold. Now, why, why is he desperate for money? Is it to take care of the people? It's not to take care of the people. It's to take care of mainly the military. And this is something I've said a lot on Twitter. When it comes to underdeveloped countries and, that are basically living under a dictatorship, the only way a dictator stays in power is through the force of the military. Right now with Guaido and Nicolas Maduro, whether Guaido comes to power or Maduro stays in power depends on what the military decides. That's the, it has nothing to do with the United States. It's nothing to do with Maduro, Guaido. It's the military. And they've said it themselves. Guaido has said it themselves. And, and there's speeches Guaido has given where he's even told his public, like, if you have any soldiers in your neighborhood, go give them a gift. Go say, you know, go hug them. Go, go be nice to them because he wants to get the military on, on his side. And if you see Nicolas Maduro's Twitter account, it's him with the military in every tweet. Photos and videos of him just sucking up to the military as much as he can. Speaking of that, um, excuse yeah. me, I didn't mean to cut you off, but they, they yeah, like, he just, like, I think it was last weekend, there was like some big rally. And then, you know, you, know, you see like the population, but they're kind of like little clumps of civilians surrounding a whole bunch of soldiers. Like yeah, like half the, the the people there were in military uniforms. Yeah, he's. He, I saw a statistic that sh that said that about eighty three percent of Venezuela is in favor of Guaido, and just thirteen or so is in favor of Maduro. He does. He doesn't have the the huge population anymore. He the, Maduro has tried to stay in power by mainly keeping happy the 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 poorest people in the country. And not just the poorest people, but even criminals, which is something you probably haven't read about. Um, I believe that in Venezuela, they're called malandros, 
which basically means criminal, but they also use it for people that Maduro has let out of jails. And he gives them a home. He gives them some food. So they live very comfortably. They don't work. But every now and again, when he asks them to go out and beat the hell out of protesters who are protesting against Maduro, they go do it. And that, that's one of the ways he's, he's stayed in power. And I've, I met recently a, a girl who was 23 when I went to buy a new cell phone recently. And the girl had been in Chile for about a year. And she said that she would, was uh, in university before she left. And she was, she was going out protesting. And she said that she was you know, fighting to get Maduro out. They would go out with her university classmates and one of the last times that she went out to protest, she said a bunch of her classmates were killed by the military. And that's where her parents just said it's too much and they sent her outside the country. Um, and that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And I and she, she also t- uh, discussed how, you know, it, it's it's the lowest classes who are who are being taken care of by Maduro, who are kind of been weaponized to fight against everyone else not the highest class not the rich people but the middle class that the, you know 80 percent of the country right it's not that's that's why that that 80 percent is on the side of guaido and that 13 percent is actually the lowest classes but for example um uh, chile has received one of the largest quantities of immigrants to uh, from venezuela to chile right uh, of the people leaving so I think the main one is Colombia, then I think it's Peru, and then it's Chile. But here's an interesting t- statistic that came out in Chile, which you probably don't know. The average person immigrating from Venezuela to Chile has a higher education level than most Chileans. And Chile is a very advanced country. People are not uneducated here. That, and that's because it's mainly people who are middle class who are university students or, or such who are immigrating here. And I've met a large quantity of people I've met here are like that girl I've met who are around their 20s and were students in university. Another uh, guy I met recently at a store said he was an engineer. Guess what kind of engineer he was? That really made me laugh. The petroleum? Yes. <laughs> Exactly. He was a petroleum engineer. I was like, well, you just left the, the country with the largest oil reserves in the world as a petroleum engineer. And you came to Chile, which well, Chile has no oil. We have copper mines. We have no oil. I think there's some oil to the south, but like it's not an oil country. Right. It's like Brazil, Colombia and Venezuela. But he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, there's there's nothing there for him, even as a petroleum engineer. Right. But that's that people of education are leaving. You know, I, I've met a lot of people. I could t- tell you more stories of the people I met. But and another thing is when I was speaking to that girl in the cell, fo- cell phone store, I told her, like, w- how do you feel about the fact? And she wasn't very familiar with this as I am. But I was telling her, you know, I'm seeing a lot on Twitter lately from a lot of Democrats, sometimes senators or representatives from the Congress of the United States that Guaido is far right. And he's being supported by the United States investment companies, you know, oil companies and and the CIA. And and it's all about Trump wanting to be an imperialist in in a in Venezuela. And they're accusing, you know, Guaido of 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 being, you know, a a puppet of all this. And And I told her, so you're against Maduro, right? You're you were fighting for 
for a return to democracy and for Maduro to step down. It's like, how, how do you feel about being accused of being a pro-Trump, pro-Republican, pro-CIA, pro-American imperialism puppet in Venezuela? You should have seen her face. The disgust, the anger. You think this girl likes Trump? Do you think this girl likes the idea of imperialism in Venezuela? Of course not. The people in Venezuela who are against Maduro are not CIA puppets. They're not, you know, people who support Trump and are far right. Uh, that uh, representative, Muslim representative um, from the U.S., uh, Ilhan Omar, yeah. she called, the, you know, Guaido and the, and the people supporting it, she referred to them as far right wing. And, you know, when she's saying that, she's referring to what far right wing, wing means to people in the U.S., Right. That's what that she's not talking about right wing Venezuela. She's talking about right wing America. And she's accusing Guaido and, and people supporting him of being that, of being Republicans, of being pro Trump, of being sold to the idea of imperialism and all this. It was a disgusting thing to say, honestly, really disgusting. And that disgust was manifested in that poor girl's face when I told her about it. And and I was pissed when I saw that tweet. And I can't even imagine this girl who saw her classmates shot to death in front of her by Maduro forces feels about being called such a thing. I can't even imagine how she feels. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, and again, this is why when I said to start, like people should travel a little bit and go out and, you know, when you go travel, go speak to the locals, see what they're doing. Um, and I'm going to give you a just slightly tangential, but I just want to get your feel about Chile on this. Like I'd worked in Haiti and I'd worked it right after the earthquake. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we were there as part You've of the a lot of Haitian immigrants to Chile too recently in the last two years. And, I love it. immigration. Actually, Chile in, in general, the large overwhelming majority is pro-immigration to this country, uh, by the way, just so you know, of Venezuelans, of Haitians, of Colombians. We're, like we've gotten, because it's a small, it, Chile is, is a small country, but it's very underpopulated. And, and, it, and, and since it's had an economic rise, there's a need of kind of, you know, people who are doing more kind of labor work and things like that. And I can't say enough good things about the immigrants that have come in recent years. Haitians, Haitians have it harder because they don't speak the language. So there's a lot of limitations as to what they can do. But Colombians, Venezuelans, love them all. No complaints. I was, you know, a lot of people were worried. Are they going to bring kind of narco trafficking here and things like that? No, it's been very good. They're excellent people. I, you know, I've never met one I didn't like. You know, you can't say enough good things about them. Like, I, you know, I can appreciate that because we do get a lot of Haitian immigrants up in Quebec as well because it's French speaking. But like what I was kind of trying to get that the people I worked with and we had to work with a lot, a lot of local companies. It was, it was mm. we we're working with part of the Canadian government effort to rebuild Haiti after the earthquake. So one of our mandates was to use as many local suppliers as possible to you know build up the local economy. Right. And I would hear, like, we would go talking around, and I spoke French. They, the company brought me down. One of the reasons they brought me down was because I spoke French. Um, it was, I, I don't understand, like, I don't want to get into why the company, you know, sending to a, a place that speaks French, and obviously Creole as well, they only spent me, one French speaker, and everyone else only spoke English. That was kind of silly, but that's a whole other topic. But a lot of the people locally were looking back fondly at Duvalier. And they were saying, oh, you know, we had more order when Duvalier was here. We could walk down the street and not get robbed. Um, 
know, because there was things like they talked about Aristide, some of the people there, and they said, okay, you know, when he came into power to prove that he had power, he actually let a bunch of prisoners go and let loose a bunch of gangs and then tried to use the police mm-hmm. to curb them down, right? To show to the people right. that I'm taking care of crime and stuff. So, but then mm-hmm. those gangs got out of hand. So a lot of people would sit back and look fondly at Duvalier, forgetting the fact that, you know, this guy was a vicious murderer. Like, I'm just wondering in Chile, do you, like, is it because Haiti's not as prosperous, prosperous, but Chile is doing better that, like, are there people who look back at, like, you know, Pinochet or Allende and say, oh, you know, things were better back then? Oh, or... yeah, half the country. I... Half the country looks, look, and not, they don't necessarily romanticize living under a dictatorship, mm-hmm. but they romanticize um, the improvement as far as the economy that was done. But, I, you know, I, I can't get too much into that. It's a very complicated thing. Um, there's, it's not a black and white issue. A lot of people will either try to attribute all of Chile's prosperity to either Allende or all of it to Pinochet. You know, I see a lot of people on the right wing and they get it wrong. They say, you know, oh, Chile, look how prosperous it it is. And that's because of Pinochet. And he brought over the Chicago boys, which is a school of economics under Milton Friedman and neoliberalism. Chile was actually never neoliberal. They didn't actually uh, there was never uh, an economic system here without regulation as neoliberalism preaches. That's not exactly true. And also the copper mines that were nationalized under Allende weren't um, denationalized. They weren't privatized under Pinochet. He kept them national. So that's a very complicated thing. But the main also other topic where they get it wrong is that after the the end of the dictatorship in 89, the left wing of Chile was perpetually in power under in the executive for 20 years. For 20 years, they were perpetually in power. There was no uh, right winger who had been elected president. And guess what? Chile prospered as well. So it prospered, you know, the, the economy got better under Pinochet, but it also got better under the left wing government. And it, it's also because the left wing government didn't change too many of the economic decisions um, made previously, though it, they did socialize, you know, a few things after, but not too much, where it got out of control. So Chile in general has made good decisions, and it's not solely because of right-wing ideologies. It's a not there's there's no such thing as like black and white issues here in Latin America. It's not just like you can say socialism is the problem. End of story. Let me tell you something. The, a lot of you know Chile is, is very prosperous. They want to say, you know, it's like, oh, you know, if they want to be like America, you know, you got to you got to end the, all the socialist and like free health care and socialized health care. Well, guess what? I have family that lives in the U.S. and they have health care plans here in Chile. <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of them. And you know why? Because our health care system is cheaper and better than in the U.S. If they get sick and it's not an emergency and something they can fly here to do, they do come. To, to to Chile and you know very far still not first world country because our our healthcare plan is better so don't so so you can't so again don't tell me it's just like socialism is evil no you, you're telling me from the states socialism is evil when I have family members who fly 13 hour flights to come and and have a healthcare plan they're playing in another country like Chile to come here and get healthcare. And you're telling me it's like, oh, just socialism. It's not that that simple. And another, and again, the, the kind of socialism that was being practiced in Venezuela 
is not the same as like the Nordic countries in Europe, right? It's a very different situation. Yeah, these okay. are these, there's a, there's a lot of and to also answer your question about um the Haitians and how they romanticize their dictatorship. Well, that's because it's a very under it was it wasn't just underdeveloped. It was practically a failed state. And you know that in Africa, Middle East, when you have failed states, there's no social order, right? It's it's it, a lot of the countries work under anarchy, and sometimes they only establish order under a dictator. Now. Why doesn't that happen under Maduro? That's a good question. Like, why aren't they romanticizing the order that a dictator like Maduro is bringing? And that's because Venezuela was not a failed state before Maduro or, or and before Chavez. It was it, the poverty was increasing. There was a lot of inequality. That's true. But it was one of the most advanced countries in Latin America, right? It wasn't a small little like there are countries in. In Latin, in Latin America that are very small and it, it, they're beyond underdeveloped, right? They're barely functioning like Paraguay. You know, if you went there, you'd, you'd be shocked. I've been there and it, it looked like, it looked like a war torn country, but there was no war. <laughs> so, so, so it's a, so Venezuela is not a country of underdeveloped, ignorant, uneducated people. It's not those people. Most of the people in Venezuela are very well educated. It's not like a poor anarchist country. They deserve way better than this. Way, way better. They should be. A, they should be a most prosperous nation, well above Chile at this point. Um, there's, there's a lot of theory. If you, there's, um, there's some uh, books. Um, there's a book called Crude Nation, and I think the subtitle is How Oil um, Ruined Venezuela, something like that. But the, the name of the book is Crude Nation. And there's a lot of theory um, from that book and, and others that it's because of the oil that and the amount of money that came from oil that ruined the nation. And, uh, for example, um, I, when, what year was this that the, that the Arab states in protest against Israel, they stopped selling their petroleum? I believe when was this? I believe it was seventy three or seventy four. Yeah, yeah, it was early in the seventy. Right, I, I was okay. Right. I, was, I was young, so I wasn't. Even, I wasn't even in Canada right. at that point. But. It was around at this time, but you remember this event, right? Yeah. That that they that some um, Gulf countries stopped selling petroleum to the West in protest of Israel. What happened in that? What caught the the side effect of that? What they did was that the oil prices in other countries that sold oil could sell it for much more. So suddenly the bar each barrel that was coming out of Venezuela that was being bought by foreign nations was worth 100 times more or something like that. I'm, I'm making that number up, but it was, it was an extraordinary number for them. And suddenly the amount of riches that were coming from Venezuela was extraordinary. And the amount of corruption in government skyrocketed in that year. And since then, the country has suffered from a lot of cor corruption. And so that's also possibly a reason, theoretically, why Chile has been one of the most prosperous countries in the in Latin America is because we don't have something as valuable as oil. We have there's copper mines, mm -hmm. and that brings a good amount of money. There's even a surplus of money uh, for Chile, but it's not enough where the corruption in the government spirals out of control. 
Do you see what I mean? Where they, where you talk about corruption in Chile and you're talking about, you know, the sca- there are scandals literally in Chile that I've seen on the news of somebody, of a politician who stole $2,000. I kid you not. Or, some, you know, some campaign or finance. Like, it's within the thousands of dollars. When it's in Venezuela, where it's not even in the millions. It's not even the hundreds of millions. It's in the billions. Hugo Chavez's daughter is the richest woman in Venezuela. I think she's worth, like, two or three billion, something like that. Oh, right? So the, that's the kind of corruption you get. And it could be because of the amount of riches that come from the oil. It, it, it's, it's often spoken of, like, uh, of a curse of, of, of resources. Yeah. I mean, and also, like, okay, just touching on this a little bit, because you said a lot, like, the socialism thing. Canada's got nationalized health care. You know, the Nordic right. countries that you mentioned, you know, they have social programs. But they're not socialist in the sense of it's not national. no they're they're, they're, they're not they're not most of the economy is not socialist you know, so part- socialist means either one institution an institution is for example healthcare another institution for example is electricity another institution is water another institution is education right all those are institutions selling shoes could be an institution right selling shoes and making shoes in north korea for example is done by the government where in in north korea everything is owned by the government even the homes of the people. Did you know that? Nobody owns a, a home in North Korea. The government owns it. They don't own anything. So that, that would be like the maximum example, North Korea, of a country where everything is, is uh, socialized. Everything is owned by the, the government. And then there are, things, there are countries which are much more privatized. Now, when you talk about like socialist countries in, in, in these Nordic places, Denmark, you know, Norway, et cetera, et cetera, they're only more socialist than the U.S. That's when people say like they're socialist, but they're not socialist in, as far as like that their economy is mostly socialized. No, obviously the the overwhelming majority of their economy is capitalist and privatized, but they have certain institutions that opposed to the United States are socialized, such as healthcare, such as university and education, etc. So they're just more socialized. Now they they kind of you know, can may have made their own mistakes and you can only socialize and, and give things out for free as far as you can afford to do that. Yeah. Right. You need a, you need a good tax base. You need a strong, you know, you need a strong exactly. economy. You need the people working, but you know, like I, I, I live in a country that is socialized I mean, healthcare. I right. appreciate it. Okay. But there are drawbacks and, of course. you know, um, like wait times are long, uh, especially in Quebec. I mean, the each province it's necess, it's socialized healthcare federally but each province takes care of how they handle that like uh british columbia you actually pay it's not much i think the most you would ever pay is about 30 bucks a month uh on top of the the like you get taxed and then based on your salary you pay a slight premium and i think the the most you can pay is about 30 bucks a month to have this nationalized healthcare, right so it's quebec we don't pay anything um so each province does it slightly differently and you know i i was a couple of years ago i was lucky because a friend of mine um was a doctor at that hospital and i spoke to him about it I, like i had to get a kidney removed and he spoke to the doctor who was uh like the the surgeon who was doing the surgery and all that he knew him spoke to him and you know i was just calling my friend to get a second opinion he did me a favor and granted, okay, whatever, say I played the system or anything, like I didn't ask for it, but 
it helps if you know someone to get a little bit speedier thing. Like my uncle, I remember he had to get heart surgery. They wouldn't let him leave the hospital because they said, okay, we need to monitor you. <clears throat> but at the same time, it took him about five weeks before they did the surgery. So he spent five weeks in the hospital waiting for surgery, which is a little ridiculous, right? Um, if it's that bad that you won't let him go home, maybe rush the surgery a bit, especially when you're talking about the heart. So, you know, something like socialized Medicare, uh, healthcare, like there, there is, or even, you know, socialized education and things like that. There is a way to talk about them. You can't go on both extremes. Like, oh my God, don't you care about the sick and the poor? Or... Yeah, there, you know, there's a stories. There are stories, a lot of stories like that about you know socialized um, healthcare um, institutions, like for example in Canada, like you just told. But I I lived in California, and at some point I got when I was in university, I, I got a, a sore throat so bad, like my my throat had swelled. I could barely speak, and I kind of suffer from like a chronic throat problem and it was just so expensive to go to the doctor and get antibiotics and and all that that it wasn't really worth it and i and i at some time at some point i decided you know it, it'd just be easier to go to mexico and get some antibiotics because i know what i need to get right this wasn't the first time this had happened to me so i i told some friends like you know do you guys want to rent a car go to Mexico for a week. We can rent a place on the beach and go surfing because we were surfers. We lived in Santa Barbara, right? Right on the ocean. We all had surfboards. So I'm like, do you guys want to go to um, to Mexico and surf for, for a week and I'll get, you know, some medicine? Like, sure. It, it, it Like, the total for everything costs less the whole trip between everyone. You know, if I, if I took on the whole, yeah. you know, cost of it, which I didn't, but if I did, it would have cost less than going to see a doctor in the U.S. So I'm 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 going to Mexico. I go to the pharmacy. I get some antibiotics. It clears up in a in a couple of days, and I'm surfing in, in, you know right on the beach, and we're renting a house, beautiful house on the coast of of Mexico, in Baja California, right? So that's really sad that it's that it's easier for me to go to a place like Mexico to get medicine than to, to get medicine in the most advanced country and richest country in the world, yeah, no, right? No, no. That, that, that's a very sad state of affairs. So there, there, are, there are, it's true, there are situations like you told in Canada, but there are other situations, and like I told you, I have family that come to Chile to, for, to, uh, who keep healthcare plans here. So, you know, it's true, like, the, you know, the, the socialized uh, healthcare plans that they have in a lot of these countries in Canada, they're really far from perfect. And I hear a lot of these people, you know, that it, you'd have to wait months to get an operation, and a lot of them come to U.S. Um, but the United States also is not perfect. Like, their healthcare plan, the amount of, pe the amount of money people pay for university is astronomical. It's really unnecessary to pay that much. What? So no, I mean, there, are, there are problems. I, I agree with you there. And that's what I was trying to say. Like we have to have, if you want to talk about these things, let's talk about them. And what are the benefits of having, you know, privatized healthcare as opposed to socialized healthcare? Can you find a happy medium? Um, like they're starting to do that here in Canada. There are private clinics that do open up, but they have a limit on what they can charge. Right. So if the federal, you know, if the government pays uh, a doctor, um, 200 bucks every time someone comes to visit these private clinics can charge a thousand right they can charge mm -hmm. maybe 250 or 300 charge a little bit more 
so you get faster service, right? Um, but at the same time, like, okay, these people who run private clinics, do they have to <clears throat> go work in a hospital, you know, one day a week or, or, you know, things like that. Like you can work out these happy mediums, but you can't do it when you're just going from one extreme to the other. Oh no, my God, if you do that, then we're all going to die of starvation because we're going to become communist if you go, you know, nationalize healthcare. Or if you go the other extreme, well, if it's all privatized, you know, only the super rich can get treatment, which, you know, a family shouldn't have to go bankrupt because a member of that family got cancer or exactly you know, the father had a heart attack or the mother had a heart attack. That shouldn't happen in, like you said, the most prosperous country in the world. That, that shouldn't mm. be a necessity. But... And, 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 it, and it, like I said, it's misusing the state of affairs of Venezuela. Yeah. And that, that, you know, I'm, you know, you see online, I am the most anti Maduro, anti Chavez, anti Bolivarian revolution guy there is. And I'll debate anybody, no matter what side they're on of it. I'll debate them and I know more than them. I guarantee you. I got a head start of 10 years on anybody reading a lot. And I speak Spanish. And I know a lot of Venezuelans. So, but it bo it bothers me a lot when I see people on the right in the United States not knowing anything about Venezuela, looking, you know, seeing the news pop up twice a year and just saying, oh, see, the problem is socialism. And really, they don't really care about Venezuela. They don't really care about the issues there. They just use it as a talking point to oppose any form of any social service in the United States. And that is untrue and it's dishonest or just out of ignorance. But I think mostly it's, it's dishonesty, especially in people who, should, who know better. Because what is happening in Venezuela is not what will happen if you had, you know, somewhat more socialized healthcare in the U.S. It would not be the case if if just university costs less in the United States, you would not get Venezuela. And, you know, when they talk about Venezuela, okay, but they could also talk about Chile. They like bringing up Chile all the time when it's to their benefit, but it's rarely in the case to talk about healthcare. They could, yeah. you know? So it, that, that also bothers me quite a bit. And you know just as well that a lot of people on the right will, not out of caring, but out of, a, an agenda of being anti-immigrant will use a lot of stories from ex-Muslims yeah, because, and, and not out of caring about them, not out of caring about what happened to them, but just to say, ah, see how evil Muslims are. We need a Muslim ban. We need to build a wall, et cetera, et cetera. And we not, we, we shouldn't take in refugees, blah, blah. And Hey, maybe there's some, you know, there's some very true points about limiting immigration. I'm not an open borders kind of yeah. guy. But also this like, you know, just cut off, you know, the, the, the rest of the world completely because you heard about one stoning somewhere in the Middle East, you know, that, that I, I think that that's too far. And, and again, I just don't believe they really care. No. And OK, just I just want to wrap up, like talk about the socialism thing and get on to something that I know we both like to talk about, which is like superhero. Star Star Trek. Well, superhero movies are Star Trek, but like, OK, getting, getting back to the right wing. <laughs> You know, they talk right. about like you know, Orban or the the right wing party in uh, in Poland. I forget the name of the leader in Poland right now. It's escaped. And they're all oh, look at these. They're 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 fighting the globalists. They're nationalists. But then they don't talk about the fact that these countries also do have socialized healthcare. They do have larger social nets than the United States, right? They they do have socialist practice, even though 
their arguments of convenience, yeah. just like I told, was telling you about Chile and Latin America, yeah. right? They, 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 they take the points that are convenient to them. They leave out the rest. And it's, you know, again, that's why I think like you, know, you, you should speak to people who are a lot more nuanced because none of these topics are, you know, there is no magic wave. Who's nuanced, obey? Who's nuanced this yeah. days and age? Right. The well, United States has lost its goddamn mind, from what I can tell. Like everybody, you like it looks like just a country that just everybody has gone collectively insane. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah. even know how to the U.S. anymore. Uh, yeah. I don't know what to say. I, I can't tweet anything about it because it's like talking about a madhouse. Yeah, it's it's like it's not even, you know, people say the horseshoe theory. No, I'm sorry, it's you have. Oh, I think that was so long ago. It's I, I say it's a parallel train theory now. Like you guys are riding on on both riding on parallel okay. tracks to hell. First of all, don't say you guys because I'm in Canada. I'm a Canuck, right? I, I'm not. I'm not American. <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah, but yeah. okay, like, but like 330 million people in the U.S. It's like 330 million people running in 330 million different directions as fast as they can. I mean, that's what it looked like to me, like from an outsider. Like that's what the U.S. looks like. But anyways, like I said, let's get on to some really important topics. DC right. or Marvel? Where do you stand on this? If you like DC more than Marvel, or you even think they're equally as good, don't at me. Unfollow <laughs> me. Don't talk to me. You're pra- you're you're, liter- you're literally Hitler, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, Wonder Woman was okay. I haven't seen Aquaman. But you can't compare these movies to Marvel. You just can't. Marvel has been killing... Like, honestly, also as a person who studied film, I'm also just really shocked that Marvel has consistently made either extremely good films or at least pretty good films, dozens of them, over more than a decade. That's really rare. You, I mean, I mean, we're, we're pretty much the same. You know how rare it is to get like a good action movie or even a good movie, yeah. right? It's, it's not that common. And also, like, uh, getting a good comic book movie, I, I thought, you probably did as well, that we were never going to get really good comic book movies. And if we did, it'd be here and there, off and on. And Marvel, like, I, I give them so much credit. They, they've they been making really, really good films. You know, like, um, most of the stories are good. The action is good. And the they, they seem to be, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, go ahead. The, the DC thing, the one thing I will give DC, and it's not even so much about the movies, and it's I don't watch a lot of it. I, I go, I'll go watch the movies, and majority of these movies I was overseas, so I was watching them. You know, I didn't get to see them in cinemas, right? Because they, I was working, I was in a military base when they were out, and we didn't get to watch it, so I watch them after the fact. But one thing I do like about DC, I don't like their like either, yeah, their live action movies are horrible, um, but. Like if you ever watch the animated movies, if you want to compare those, I think like DC. I think a... I've, I I think I saw like one or two. I haven't. I don't really see them that much. Yeah, I find that DC does a better job on the animated side than Marvel does. But perhaps I, mean, I, I, don't, I haven't seen them. But I mean, like just in like story was like I I grew up. Um, so this is something that I, I just I just bring up because it, it bugs me a little bit. My dad was Apu technically, right? Okay, when my no, but. <laughs> Six, six, six months after moving from India to Canada, my dad opened up a, like you know, bought a convenience store and started running a convenience store. So my dad was Apu. So when they say, "Oh well, we got to get rid of Apu off the Simpsons because he doesn't represent uh, Indians," I'm like, "Well, what about me?" You know, but like, but because of that, I he had comic books there, and we would go to the store, uh, you know, after school, go home with our dad, um, 
or whatever. Like if he was there on the weekends and I'd go into downtown on the weekends, I'd you know run to my dad's store. Um, he always had comic books there. So I started reading them and this was in the seventies. And back then DC was really big. Marvel was kind of like, you know, not even a close second. They were, you know, a distant second to, to DC. And that's how I got into comic books was reading them there. And then I, when I, you know, I really liked, you know, Superman and Batman. But then I, when I started reading more of the Marvel stuff, I really got into uh, Spider-Man. I liked the X-Men a lot. Um, but I, like, even as a kid, I found, you know, like getting slightly older, I found that, you know, DC was okay for when you were seven to 12 because they were so two-dimensional and, you know, Superman's this Boy Scout you know, like there, there, there was no real development. Whereas in Marvel, you you got to see like the inside of these characters, and it's just like I've always liked reading. I've always you know had a good imagination. But whereas with Marvel, uh, DC, like I didn't find that, and so I started becoming a Marvel fan even at a young age. Yeah, and but and again, it, it's if these movies had been made by any other country, a company like Universal, Paramount, you know, um, Fox. And they had made the same quantity of movies, you know, like maybe one of them or two of them would have been good, which is what happened, for example, with the X-Men movies. Right. Most of them are not good. I thought that it, Logan was a, was a very good movie. Right. But but they decided to do something kind of different and strange there. Right. Where they made it rated R. They made it very like more, a lot more violent than usual. Um, it was obviously based on a lot of Westerns. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Um, I, I thought it was excellent. I thought it was the best X-Men movie they had done, and the rest of them I could live without, to be honest. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I give them credit for you know, con- deciding to make consistently good movies. You know, that, that are, are, they're not making them, obviously, to just a, appeal to a mass, you know, and, and not a... For example, DC has made the mistake of kind of trying to keep up with, uh, w- with Marvel, where they're like, okay, we need to do this universe building. Uh, Marvel is bringing out, you know, the next Avengers movie. We need to put out the the Justice League movie before we make any of these other movies with the Flash and Aquaman, which made no sense, right? We're getting a Justice League movie before we get to know any of these characters, and then it's crap. And they try to make it like Guardians of the Galaxy kind of jokes. Um, it, it was, it's just, it's just bad. It doesn't make any sense. Um, the 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 villain, for example, in uh, in a justice league was just your typical big brutish. I'm going to destroy the world kind of character while Thanos actually had a story arc, you know, a personality, an objective, um, and, and was evil, but in in a way where he actually was trying to help the people of the universe live in a more prosperous way, which was very interesting. Um, there's a lot of topics in, uh, in the Marvel movies that are very interesting from a kind of sociopolitical point of view, like in civil war, where it's like, should, you know, should they be under the control of the United Nations or not? You know, even as a person who studied international relations, there was a lot of really interesting um, points made there. You know, which way should you lean? Um, yeah. No such things going on in, in the DC universe. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, guys. I, I, I don't like Batman. That. The, the surprising thing was, is that, you know, as much hate as we give Ben Affleck, he was a really good Batman. He wasn't bad, and I mean... He was good, yeah. Like, okay, He's not Batman anymore, he left, yeah, I, so... I mean, but, I mean, like, when you're talking about, okay, like, will they ever do a good comic book movie? Right? Because up until that point, I mean, there was the original Superman with Christopher Reeve, 
you know, at like yeah. the early 80s. And I, mean, I saw that as a kid. We got to give him credit. It, don't you find it amazing that Christopher Reeve could put on those glasses and then take them off and actually look like a totally different person. Yeah. Nobody has been able to replicate that. Nobody. Like in these new movies where, where you know, you have the Superman and he's, he has his glasses at the page. He looks like the same guy. Like you, you people are dumb if you cannot realize that that is Superman. And another thing, another mistake made in the new DC movies is that, and nobody has really pointed this out out too much, is that if you notice, how what is the actor's name? I forget. Canville, Calville, or something like that. Henry Canville. Henry Cavill, or something. Yeah. So he, if you notice, he actually doesn't play the character of Clark Kent. Did you Did you notice that that he is not a nerdy, you know, arched back, goofy, no confidence guy, right? He's very. He stands up straight. He's very confident. He pushes back on people. He says, "I want to report this story about Gotham and Batman." Right. He, he's very assertive. There's nothing nerdy about him other than he's just wearing glasses. Yeah, right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like Clark Kent was supposed to be mild mannered. Like you talk about Christopher Reeve. Exactly. You know, Christopher like, Reeves watched the old Christopher Reeves. Like there are there are moments. There's a moment literally in that in, in um, I, I can't I think it was Superman 2 where he's looking into a window and you can see his reflection and he takes off his glasses and you really see him. His face changes like he's suddenly goes from Clark Kent to looking like Superman. It looked like a totally different person. Yeah. And, he, and and not, and and his look and his attitude, like he really played up the Clark Kent, not just the Superman. And I haven't seen that replicated in in every Superman after that. Like Christopher Reeve is just never gets enough credit for for the transformation he gave that character from Clark Kent to Superman. Yeah. And then we can all forget uh you know Superman 4 the, the, the quest for yeah i mean they all kind of went downhill after. i mean that's what i'm saying like you know even when you got like a good superhero movie like you know uh, batman with michael keaton or that superman you're not going to get a decade of dozens of good movies after that right it'll always go downhill afterwards right yeah. but marvel is like i even like infinity war was really good wow. i was i was sh- shocked they had like what like i think i read they had like 80 main characters in that movie was, something ridiculous and it was balanced it was i mean that's really hard writing that's very hard writing to balance that out i, I don't understand how okay i like black panther i thought it was a decent movie i mean they were there you know i had some issues with it but overall it was a fun movie you know you could kill a couple hours it was you know it was okay it was kind of the weakest of yeah, the marvel movie but i the, loved i loved black panther and civil war it was yeah. it was amazing i was looking forward to it but it wasn't it yeah. didn't accomplish much but to get nominated for an oscar and then like almost every marvel movie besides that one was better and it's not it was bad it wasn't that it actually had one of the best villain villains right killmonger was was, was an excellent villain in that film but it just wasn't not an oscar worthy film it was a it was a political correct nomination right kind of thing it's very political but Whatever. I'm at on some level. I'm just kind of happy. A you know, a Conquer movie was nominated, although it was for all the wrong reasons. I mean, really, if you if you looked at the Marvel movies and really the ones that stand out, I'd say it's like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first Iron Man, um, Captain America: Civil War, and Winter Soldier. Those are really excellent films, like on their own. I, I especially I think Iron Man one is like on its own separate from like being a comic book movie is a very good movie. Yeah. I, I, I like the, 
same thing like the the Thor movies I wasn't a huge fan of but I liked that character in the Avengers right they, they were trying to find the footing right on, on, on some of these movies like it didn't sometimes it didn't really work like Thor is a very complicated character to represent on screen right it, it, it it's a this mystical you know magical kind of place you know Valhalla and Thor with his hammer it looks very awkward and weird on, on screen that's the truth. It, it, it doesn't come off very well. And they, you know, the first um, director of it was um, it was the Shakespearean uh, actor. Um, I for, what is it? What's his name? I like him a lot, but he's a Shakespearean um, actor, and he directed the film, and it was very kind of this classical kind of directing. But um, it it didn't find its footing until the. Until uh, Ragnarok, I felt. Yeah, Ragnarok, I thought was a great movie, but then again, that was kind of like a buddy movie in a sense, because I mean, you know, not that I think anyone's not seen it yet or whatever, but like you know, he, you know, you have the Hulk in there, you've got uh, uh, what's what's the character Valkyrie, whatever. So it kind of was like a an ensemble movie, even though it's Thor, it's a Thor movie, right? So like, I I found that it was it was a fun again, it was a fun movie. It it kept you entertained, it kept you engaged. And you know, it wasn't trying to like shove a message down your throat or anything. But yeah, um, Kenneth Brock, Kenneth Brockan is the is the Shakespearean actor who directed the yeah. first one. He's a he's a wonderful actor, and he he makes some of the best uh, Shakespearean films. Yeah, he's, no, he's Kenneth Bra- he he directed the the first Thor movie. He directed the first one. I mean, he does, he's a Shakespearean actor. Oh, yeah, no, and, I, I, the yeah. best version of Hamlet I have ever seen. And Othello, I think. Yeah. And but, Othello. He, he was he was an amazing Iago. Yeah. When the when I saw Hamlet, I was living in Vancouver, and mm. so they played. Uh, now I, I don't know if you can find the full, like it was like almost three hours or maybe a little bit over three hours. The extended and, version of uh, yeah, the Hamlet. Yeah when, it, yeah, when it first came out, I saw it. They, it was this old cinema in Vancouver that you know it wasn't a multiplex. They had like nice old seats, and they'd upgraded the sound and everything, and had a nice brand new screen in it. And went and saw it, and they actually put an intermission in the movie. And we went out, and there was a bunch. Uh, I was with a friend of mine. It just made me laugh. A, a few people were like, "Well, that's a kind of a weird ending." And they just walked away. They didn't realize it was an intermission. <laughs> they, they didn't, didn't realize they had an intermission. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't realize that the play still went on. Like it was just right. You know, I it, but yeah, you know, but I mean, like, like I said, I think Island. the movie itself has an intermission, like yeah. within it. Yeah, right. It, it, it yeah, says, it's part of the film. Yeah, yeah they, they would. They, the, it came up on the screen. Intermission, blah blah. blah. You go out, and they gave people a little bit of a break, and then you come back in for like close to another two hours, right? But yeah, no, I just right. uh, getting off and attended. But okay, you'd lived in uh, in Asia. You lived in Korea, and you mentioned Japan. I know you've watched a lot of Asian films. Like I haven't seen a ton, but I did watch. No, no, no. I am an expert of Asian cinema. Don't under don't don't sell me short, man. Okay. No, but I, mean, I like, dedicate like, a lot of my life to studying it. <laughs> you know, like, I, I've watched like the Kurosawa stuff. Um, uh huh. But I mean, like like some of the more recent ones, uh, like Old Boy. I really liked Old Boy, and I did. I thought the American remake was actually Spike fairly Lee. good. Oh. Uh, no, Spike Lee's version was awful. You thought it was awful? It was awful, okay. terrible. Because I, I remember seeing the original Old Boy and I liked it. Then when this one came out, I watched it again. I was like, maybe, oh, I, maybe I don't remember the original one. Everyone can skip it if you're listening to this. Skip that the American version by Spike Lee of Old Boy. Mm-hmm. Totally useless reboot. Totally, and it's unnecessary. It's just the the first the original one oh, is the, enough. Yeah, but, the original was great. I mean, that, I, I find that there's. Especially the bad guy in the reboot. Oh wow, that English guy. He's a good actor. I think he was the same actor from District Nine, but 
no, it was it was just it was just bad. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, like I I find that Kate, another uh, so like I've seen a few, like I said, like the, the old Kurosawa ones. So you can you know, you know, the Magnificent Seven is a remake of what the Seven Samurai, and you know, you've got all sure. those. And then like there's a there's another one. Um, I think it was. Uh, well, you have to like a very interesting thing about uh, Japanese cinema. A lot of people point out that. For example, there was the Magnificent Seven, which is a reboot of the Seven Samurai. But if you study Japanese cinema and samurai cinema, as I have, you find out that samurai cinema actually came from the old John Wayne, John Ford uh, films. Though the, they, they, there was a lot of inspiration from the oldest westerns to Japan, and then when. Uh, or Kira Kurosawa made his films, and a lot of his films, remember, were based off of uh, Shakespearean plays yeah. and okay. old westerns. Like, like Yojimbo is is an, is a, a, something inspired greatly by an old western. But then he had, uh, for example, Throne of Blood is a, is a, an adaptation of Macbeth, and, also and he a, made ad- ad- adaptations of like Kagamusha's of uh, 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 which one is Kagamusha of uh, King Lear. It's a it's a it's an adaptation of King. Who did Ran? And uh, there was a movie called Ran, and that was also kind of an adaptation of King Lear. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. Kagamusha is is another one. Maybe it's Ran. Because Ran, That's... okay, like it was two sons, as opposed like in King Lear, it's actually two daughters, right? Um, there are three daughters. Goneril. Um, Might be right. Yeah. For example, and also there's um, there's a adaptation of Hamlet called uh, The Bad Sleep Well, which is not not as well known. Um, but so he's, you know, he's taking a lot of things out of Western culture and adapting it to Japanese, uh, samurai film, right? So there, when people talk about cultural appropriation, right? Well, this is the classics. This is the, 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 the most famous, you know, birthplace of, of samurai cinema, right? And it's feeding off of old John Ford Westerns and, and Shakespearean plays, Right. And and then those Akira Kurosawa films are then reinterpreted into Clint Eastwood and 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 Magnificent Seven and all these other Westerns. And they continuously feed off each other for a century. Well, then what is, you know, the uh, you know, the culture of samurai cinema? What is the culture of what of of the American Western? Right. When they've been feeding off each other since, you know, their their early, you know, 30s and 40s. It makes no sense to talk about like cultural appropriation right for example and i'll give you another example that's more recent which is really interesting um there are a lot of great action movies coming out of indonesia indonesia being the biggest muslim country in 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 the world and in uh in southeast asia right um well they have kind of vitalized their cinema and especially like martial arts action films with a a series of films called the raid which probably a lot of people have heard of. And it features a, a form of martial arts from Indonesia called Silat. Okay. Now the raid films ha- were international phenomenons. You know, there was, there was a kind of films that are kind of inspired by them, but who directed these movies? It wasn't directed by an Indonesian. It was directed by a, a, a guy from, uh, from Wales who married a, an Indonesian woman moved to to Indonesia and directed uh, a movie called Marantau, I think was the first one, which is wasn't that good. And then he made The Raid, which was phenomenal, then made a sequel. 
And now Indonesia is making all kinds of great films. I recently saw a film from there, also an action over the top gory film called uh, The Night Comes From Us, which is a Netflix uh, production. So it's on Netflix. The Night Comes For Us. Amazing film. Beautifully. It wasn't just in, like it had a lot of action, a lot of gory action. But it was beautifully shot. Um, the, the director from Wales is called uh, Garth Evans. So when even you're talking in this case about like Indonesian culture, well, here's Indonesian culture, their martial arts, Silat, being portrayed in Indonesian in an Indonesian film, right, with Indonesian actors. But one of the main components that drove this piece of art forward and made it what it was was this guy from Wales, <laughs> right? So what is culture there, right? It's there's to talk about culture is a very odd thing. Very odd thing. And, and it's like, did, did Garth Evans culture appropriate, you know, <laughs> like uh, Indonesia by doing that? I mean, I, right. I, I hate that term. Like, honestly, though, the, the there's cultural... a, it's one of those terms. There's a lot of terms that sometimes are abused yeah. by social justice warriors. For example, triggering, yeah. for example, that's an actual term. Like there are people suffering from PTSD who get triggered by certain things and get emotional trauma. They relive it in the moment because of that trigger. It's a real thing, but it's abused by the social justice warriors. The term cultural appropriation is total nonsense bullshit. It means nothing. Cultural appropriation at its core has to imply that to appropriate culture, someone has to own it. And no one owns culture. No, it's no one. It's it, it's it's not under the property of anyone. Right? And every culture at some level is a mix of other cultures. Always. Maybe there's some amazonian aborigine tribes right who are these untouched tribes by the outside world right who have existed there for centuries maybe them right maybe you could culturally appropriate their stuff but everything else no 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 no, no. Don't, don't don't talk to me about cultural appropriation unless you understand the culture deeply and most of these people do not okay the last movie i want to kind of talk about because i it was all right it wasn't my first uh like it wasn't the first time I'd seen a movie from you know you know Japan or Korea, but it was one that I still liked. I still like a lot, and it it really made me think, because I mean before this when I think a lot of what I'd seen were majority like you know the the martial arts movies and stuff coming out of there, right? But I saw um, Afterlife, so it was the one I believe it's called Afterlife. Uh, I could I forgetting the name. Of yeah, it. Japanese film. Yeah, where they where you stay in a way station, you decide what your favorite memory is. And then you go oh, back. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, I saw that movie a really long time ago. Though, I, I mean, I yeah, know. like that was like it's pretty old. Yeah, yeah, I saw it like what mid nineties. Yeah, and it yeah. was like I said, it was the first. I mean, I know Ran and all that had come out before, but it was only after kind of like seeing this that I said, okay, let's see what else is out there instead of just you know a couple of guys beating the shit out of each other with karate, right, or kung fu or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was a really interesting movie, and it just completely changed the way I I looked at movies from um movies from like you know japan you know like korea like so east asia because i mean i grew up for you know my mom grew up i grew up watching bollywood movies because my mom would watch them all the time and i can't stand bollywood movies but then once in a while they would have these really good movies come out of india um and i'm like why don't they promote these instead of that fluff right and it was the same the thing. dance ones you know the romantic dance yeah. ones yeah oh but like like i would so that was when I when I saw this movie Afterlife, I was like, you know, why do they not promote this instead of just the the martial arts things? 
Because, okay, you know, the martial arts movies, they're good escapism. You know, they're fun. You can watch. But this actually gives you more of an idea of, you know, how someone might think or where they're coming from. Or like seeing some of the old Kurosawa movies, seeing those and seeing how, like you said, like, you know, they adapted this and then we adapted from those movies, you know, Magnificent Seven was adapted or whatever. But, um, like, I just, like, do you remember anything about that movie or like how would, like, when did you start appreciating movies from like Japan and Korea? Was it when you moved there or was it before that or was it while you were studying? So, well, I, there's so much to say. I mean, there's, I could talk about movies from Hong Kong or China or, or Japan, but I'll say, um, you know, cause I moved to Korea and the, the, one of the, one of the first films, it wasn't the first film, but it was one of the first films I saw was called JSA. Have you ever seen that movie? So JSA is a film that takes place on the border between North and South Korea. The The border itself is called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. But the base, the military base of North Korea, that's right in front of the military base of South Korea and the United States, is called the Joint Security Area, or JSA. And there's a film with some of the best actors from South Korea. Song Kang-ho, Shin Ha-kyun, um... There is just like today there are some of the best actors and this is really early uh, new wave South Korean film and the new wave started around uh, 1997 or something like that was when it first started and and that film just blew me away. It's it's not a it's not an action film. It's not a over the top martial arts film. It's a very interesting film. It's not boring at all. Um, anybody would enjoy it. And it's very still relevant today because of the conflicts between South Korea and North Korea. Um, I just, I'd re- I really, really recommend that film. There's, I mean, I could recommend endless amount of films, but that's still one of the... And, and I, I believe it's from Chan Park, the, the director of Old Boy as well. I think this is one of his first uh, kind of uh, big productions in South Korea. Um, and I, th- I think one of the best ways to learn in conjunction with studying about a culture or a country or their politics is to watch films from there. Um, and I've taken it upon myself to also try to watch a lot of m- films from the Middle East. Um, like there's a, there's not a lot of, although sometimes there's not a lot of films. Um, I can only, there's only like two films from Saudi Arabia, but there's one film directed by a woman called Wajda. Fantastic film about a little girl in Saudi Arabia who wants to buy a bicycle fantastic film fantastic film like when we're talking about like reform or something like that i truly believe that reform of of underdeveloped religious societies is mostly going to come from art it's not going to come from people talking theology it's not going to come from people talking philosophy it's not going to come from political authors you know a political western author in the UK or the US or Canada writing a book about theology and philosophy in English is not going to resonate or even get to really the average person who's living in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or Iraq or things like that. The real change there is going to come from artists and people mainly consume TV shows, movies, especially in countries like this where most of the population is illiterate, like Afghanistan, right? Or, or Pakistan. A large, very large quantities of people are illiterate. I recently saw... A film based on a book that I also read called The Patient Stone by an author called uh, uh, Atik Rahimi, who's from Afghanistan and moved to 
France. And he wrote a novel called The Patient Stone. I won't go into all the details about it. It's a fantastic book about this woman who's taking care of her husband who's in a coma. It's it's an amazing book. And he and then there's a movie made where he's the author himself, Atik Rahimi, is the director. Beautiful film as well. Amazing. There's so much to learn there. It's not just beautiful, but you you can learn and see things about the customs and cultures and and the oppression of women and where they stand in the eyes of men, etc. Um, seeing that, you know, through the eyes of a person who's lived that culture, in and re- in, in the representation of art, besides just reading about politics and learning about Islam, it gives you another feel for. Uh, for the, these cultures, these countries, these people, that you you can really fall into the game of dehumanizing entire regions of people or entire cultures of people if all you see all day is another terrorist attack on Twitter. If that's all you're consuming, right? You're just seeing stonings and terrorism and ISIS and you know a, a short video of some women getting abused on on Twitter or Facebook and that's all you're getting all the time, you just think it's you know constant just misery twenty four seven, right? You have to also see you know the, some of the beauty coming from these places, and some of the beauty is represented in very traumatic and dramatic ways, right? It's not fluff, right? Like the the movies I'm I'm telling you about, they're not fluff. They're they're they tell very harsh, traumatizing stories of of women and people living in these societies. But there's some there's you know there's some beauty behind that as well because it's very it's very humanized yeah no i mean okay like that's again people should go out and see these things but okay talking about afghanistan because i was there close to seven years someone who just sees the terrorist attacks and okay maybe i'm at fault here because when something like that does happen i do you know share it and stuff but, I do as well. Yeah, I do as well because it's important as well. But yeah. you know, if I'm talking to someone, I said, okay, you know, I've spoken to people on the ground there, and I've talked to them, and like you know, in the cities I saw this, in the countryside I saw this, and it's not like I'm making a defense of Islam or a defense of, you know, and I shouldn't have to make a defense of Islam. Like that's not making a defense of, you know, the Salafi Wahhabi fundamentalist, very literal version of Islam. It's just I'm saying okay, there is another side there. Like you, ha- you also have to look at the people. You have to look at you know how your decisions affect them. Um, you know, like you know, the people in Kabul were happy that NATO was there. Uh, once they started seeing electricity come back on, once they started seeing you know schools being built, once they started seeing these kind of things, they were happy that you had people there. Uh, but when you try to talk about that you get you know from both sides either i'm a stealth jihadi or i'm a right-wing neocon that wants to build empires it's like no you know we can talk about these it's like you know anything else we can talk about these things and it's it's not just talking about it saying well oh they're all a bunch of terrorists there or okay the, the thing i sorry i'm just rambling a little bit the thing i like when i went to haiti we got there and we were told by the Canadian government, this is what you have to do. They were our client, right? But then when we started doing the work for these, like we built uh, temporary offices, which are still running, you know, eight years mm-hmm. later for the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Agriculture. Um, the We used to call it the Ministry of, of Bribes because it was 
called the Ministry for the Reconstruction of Haiti. That was basically funneling money for the Clinton Foundation, but whatever, let's not get into that. But we built these offices, right? When we got there, we were told by the Canadian government, this is what you have to do. No one bothered to speak to anyone at these ministries to require what they needed. Mm. So I was responsible for the IT. So I'm getting the IT section set up based on what the Canadian government gave me. Then when we were doing it for the Ministry of Health, they're like, okay, can you do this for us? Can you do that? Like they wanted their servers to be able to talk. Like no one in the Canadian government went and spoke to them to say, okay, what do you need as far as IT? They just said, okay, go give them a network that works. And I said, well, what, no, they just need a network that works so that people can get on, get on the internet, do their research, do their work, put their files in. But there was no talk of connecting the network I was building to the existing network that was already there so that you know, they could port data over or they could, there was, there was none of this talk. It was just, right. And so when they asked me to do it, I had to go back to the Canadian government and say, well, you know, they want me to do this. It's going to, you know, you've budgeted a hundred thousand dollars. It's going to cost me 150. I need that extra $50,000. Right. So it's getting back to what you're saying. Like no one really, when you're talking about places like Afghanistan or any of these places, like even North Korea, not that there's much that comes out of it, but watching a movie from someone who's South Korean or reading um, like the, the, the book, uh, you know, Yonomi's Park's book in order to live or reading books from people who are there. Like reading those things, reading that kind of stuff, that's how you're going to inform yourself. You know, like watching the news, getting your news off Twitter, or getting your news off Facebook is not going to give you an insightful look at any of these places. Well, I'll give you uh, maybe this is the last story I'll, yeah. I'll tell you to keep it short, but it's a little bit long. But you've heard of Nadia Murad, right? Yeah. You've heard that she's a Yazidi woman who was a sex slave kept under ISIS. Yes. And she escaped and now is living in the West, right? She won the Nobel Prize recently. Mm -hmm. She's very famous now. Do you know how she escaped? There was a Muslim family in Syria that took her in and helped her escape. Right, exactly. And it's very important to know the whole story because it's one of the worst situations that a human being has probably lived in within our lifetime. And just in that story, it's not black and white. Um, So this, so this woman who's Yazidi, which is an ethnic group and religion, mainly a religion among the ethnic Kurds who are called Yazidi. They were invaded by ISIS abandoned by Kurdish forces and her village was wiped out. They took all the people from the, her, her community. They killed all the men. They kept the women and they would sell them off from ISIS fighter to ISIS fighter and they would just rape them and then pass them along to another person. Right. So we could go into the details as I've read the book. The book is called the last girl. Yeah. It's Some pretty, of the most, her- it's, it's very graphic. It's very graphic. It's very hard to read for anybody. But at some point, she's left in the home with another ISIS fighter who's going to rape her. And he steps out and he doesn't lock the door and she leaves. But the question is, where does she leave to? Right. Who, where does she go? Because she's in ISIS territory. And if she knocks on some random door, those people could be sympathetic to ISIS, hate Yazidi and then turn her in. But she has to do something. 
right? She can't just be walking around all, all night. So she knocks on a door, explains who she is, that she's a Yazidi woman, and she was being kept as a sex slave. Already being kept as a sex slave, you know that you're seen as kind of lower than human, right? Yeah. As in a lot of these cultures. She is brought into this family's home. Luckily, they're not sympathetic to ISIS, but they are Sunni Arabs versus her that she's Kurdish Yazidi. Different religion, different ethnic group, different language. Although I believe she spoke Arabic a little bit. And they devise a plan to get her out of ISIS territory and get her into Kurdish territory. And the plan is that she is going to use the ID of an Arab Sunni woman, but she's going to wear a face veil so she doesn't match the picture. But ISIS fighters don't usually lift the face veils of Sunni Muslim Arab women, right? Yeah. It's considered very disrespectful. It's considered haram. They probably won't do it, but they might. They might, and if they do, and she doesn't match the the photo, she could get killed, and she could get killed with the people she's with. And she's going to leave that area by saying she's the she's the wife of one of these Sunni Muslim guys that she is staying in the home in. They're going to put her in a car. They're going to say, "I'm taking my wife to visit her uncle or aunt that's outside, you know, the the city." So he's taking a risk. If he's caught, he could get killed and his family could get killed besides her. Yeah, no, it's, they, they get through, right? And then there's, if you, did you read the book as well? Yeah, I read it. Do you remember also that along the way, she's also worried the whole time that when she reaches Kurdish territory and she may find her family, they might kill her, right? Because a woman who has been raped outside of their culture they technically should be killed so she's so she's already fearful of her life under isis and already trying to escape to back to her family who might kill her for being raped right so this is a very bad situation season actually i just want to touch and, on that sorry yeah. i don't want to, because what you brought up there um i don't know if you read this uh series of reports by this um uh rukmini Kalyamaki, she's a journalist. Oh, I know her. I know she did a series yeah. of podcasts on um, ISIS. ISIS, but I haven't, I haven't heard it. Uh, it's, it's actually one of those things. They actually bring up that point where a lot of the younger generation was telling the elders when some of these women were coming back and the girls and women were coming back after being raped and being sex slaves. There is a huge stigma attached to them, and like they were almost like you know the untouchables in the case system in India, right? But a lot of the younger generation, the guys said no. These are our sisters. This is not, no fault of their own. We right. want to bring them back and we want to welcome them back. So a lot of the younger generation was fighting back against this. Well, also in, in, in credit to the, at least the, I mean, it's credit where, you know, as much as you can give, considering it's a very archaic kind of rule, but the, the elders and the religious leaders of the Yazidi yeah. passed a general, I guess you could call it fatwa or rule. I don't, I, I don't know what they would call it, but a general fatwa that said, that the women who were raped under ISIS were forgiven, that they should not be killed, yeah. right? So, they, so they, it wasn't, they weren't enforcing that general rule that existed before the situation. So she wasn't, so her life wasn't in danger. But the man who was with her, the Sunni Arab who was living under ISIS, who had, was risking her life to bring her to Kurdish territory, back to her family, 
said like she she even said like you know maybe you should go back home she's he said i i won't abandon you until i'm sure you're okay and up until like she finds an aunt i think or some family that he eventually heads back nadia murad says at the end of the book that later she found out that what had been done that that this family had helped her was discovered by isis and he was killed and some of his family was killed and that guy helped out a, a person, wasn't of his tribe, wasn't of his religion, wasn't of his country, wasn't of his ethnicity, risked his family's life, and they were killed for it. So that story is usually shared online as just like, look at the evil that is done by Sunni Arabs and ISIS in, in the Middle East. But within that story that you would really have to read the book to understand is also probably one of the most heroic stories I'd, I have ever read. Yeah. And that, and when you read a book which has the most horrific, demonstrable, demonic kind of actions from human beings that have occurred in, 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 in the new 21st century. And then within that, there's also probably one of the most heroic stories you could read. Life is not simple. It's not simple enough to just say, you know, Muslims are evil, end of story. It's not. It's not, it's not simple. It's not, it's not summarizable to a tweet no. or a headline. There's a lot more involved. And, that, and that's why I always tr make the effort, although it's really hard and it's hard to find the time, to actually read these books like you do. And most people don't. And most people just see headlines and just see tweets and just see, you know, YouTube clips that last five minutes or something like that. And I'm sorry to say that you don't understand the topic and you don't understand what's going on. And it's very hard for you to formulate an opinion based on just that. And I mean, yeah. And when you're doing that, I mean, you can't even say skimming the surface because it's, it is so, so utterly superficial. That I'm skimming the surface. Yeah, there's so much going on. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, every country you could spend a lifetime trying to study just one. If you just decided to study Egypt, you could spend the rest of your life trying to understand it. Right. I'm skimming the surface. The rest of the people, they're not skimming the surface. They don't, you know, they, they, they haven't even seen the book cover yet. Yeah, I mean, they're reading like, you know, it's, they're, they're hearing about the title of a book from somebody. They haven't even seen the, the jacket. Yeah, yet. exactly. And then they, they, <laughs> right. they'll bring that book up in conversation because they heard you and I right. talking about it. And it's like, right. You know, they don't, they don't get pressed on. Well, this well, is why I like, I make the effort. I don't want he people to hear what I have to say in my opinion. I try to make the effort to push out information for people to consume. Watch this movie, read this book, listen to this person, you know, read this art, you know, so something beyond not just I'm going to tell you what's what, which a lot of these people do. A lot of, uh, you know, people who are very much admired, you know, s someone, for example, like Majid Nawaz, I'd say try to I, I don't see him recommending a lot outside of his own opinion. Sorry, you know, sorry to say, but I don't see him doing that. I don't see him saying, read this book, follow this person, you know, consume this other media. It's always like, here's my opinion. This is what you need to know. Yeah. That's not enough. No. That's not enough. I, I, I would never say my opinion is all you need to know. If anything, I, I, I just want to be the person to reference something for people to consume, a, a reference point to, oh, that's an interesting book. Lalo mentioned Nadia Murad. Lalo, Lalo mentioned Atik uh, Rahimi in, in this podcast. And I'm going to go out, I'm going to watch that movie. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to do some extra work. I like that. I like when I listen to a podcast and I get to write down like five book titles that I, I, I could read. I, that's what I, I go there for because you're not going to get just the, 
it, not just the whole picture, but you're not even going to see the, you know, the, the, the book jacket from hearing a conversation. It's, it's, it's only a little piece of the puzzle. Yeah, totally. And on that note, I have taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very much for being very generous. Yeah, how dare uh, you, Abate? Yeah, how yeah, dare you? How dare I? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe like at one point or other in the future, you can come back on and we can talk. We can argue about Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, oh man, <laughs> I hope you got five hours for that. <laughs> I love that the new, uh, Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, is is summarized to the initials of STD because that's what it is. <laughs> it is an STD. It's garbage. I haven't seen the second season. Like I, I got through about halfway oh, the first season. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but yeah, I heard the second season is getting a little better. Maybe I might get no, it. Okay. We we'll, we'll do another podcast anyway, about that. Someday. Anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to give out your social media stuff or where people can see you? And find me on is called Lalo Dagash. Whether it's my podcast, Lalo Dagash podcast, my Twitter is Lalo Dagash. So just Google that uh, for my podcast which I'm, I have been taking a break from, but I'll bring, I'm bringing it back soon. Um, and my Twitter, and I don't use too much more else than that. All right, cool. Well, I'll put those all in the, those links down. And some of the books you'd mentioned, I'm going to put links to them in the thing as well, so people who are interested, they can go read them. Well, thanks a lot, Lalo. It was great. Thank you.